Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. The photographer Elliot Erwitt once said, To me, photography is an art of observation. It's about finding something interesting in an ordinary place. I found it has little to do with the things you see and everything to do with the way you see them. You're listening to Seeds Talking Purpose, and this is Stephen Moe. Today we get the chance to speak with Jonathan Lee, who's a traveling photographer who takes photos of people and places around the world and uses those photos to tell their stories. He's currently in Christchurch, New Zealand, which is where I met him, but before that he was in Nepal taking photos and working with the group Conscious Impact, which is a grassroots organization dedicated to rebuilding communities in rural village Nepal following the 2015 earthquakes. And in our conversation, we talk about a huge variety of topics, ranging from his influences from his mother through to what photography means as a form of art. Here's an extract from the interview with Jonathan. A lot of these events and people who are doing something, looking a certain way, certain emotions, they really only happen once. I can't ask the groom to put the ring on the bride's finger one more time because I missed a shot. Yeah. And I love that. I love that organicness of it. Mm. And the magic comes when you're able to witness it and also capture it. Now, in the next episode, as usual, we're going to go in a completely different direction and speak with the president of the Auckland District Law Society, Joanna Pigeon. And she's going to share with us about her career as a lawyer and what it's taken to succeed in a profession like that. And it's a really fascinating conversation that I hope you'll be able to join me for. Now, let's get into the interview with Jonathan. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Jonathan Lee here on the podcast today. And uh, we were talking about how to introduce you. And I think uh, a traveling nomadic photographer, videographer is what we decided on. Let's go with that. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Yeah. Jonathan, on this uh, podcast, we talk a lot about purpose. But I find that in order to do that, it's really helpful to look at a person's life and to go back right to the beginning and try to see if there's threads that have maybe woven through that person's life. So before we get into what you're doing now, I'd really love to hear about your background and where you're from. Sure. My family and I were born and raised in Hong Kong, and I was there until I was 10 years old. So in the middle of fourth grade, my family and I, including um, two of my older sisters, uh, sold our apartment in Hong Kong and packed everything up and moved to Los Angeles in California. And that decision to leave Hong Kong and move to Los Angeles, like how did how did your parents go about making that? You got to backtrack a little bit, actually. Um, they decided to apply for the green card, which is the, the the permission to enter the U.S. to live and work, right around the time that I was born, and it took nine. I believe about nine years for the U.S. to finally approve it. And uh, they decided because they thought that, like a lot of folks from Asia, Latin America, other parts of the world, we would have, and when I say we, it's my sisters and I, we would have more opportunities, education opportunities, work opportunities, life opportunities mm. in uh, the United States mm. than we would in Hong Kong. Not mm. that Hong Kong is a bad place to, to mm. grow up and live, but... 
in terms of university education and just the more free lifestyle as mm. a lot of people associate the United States lifestyle to be. Um, they wanted us to have the opportunity to to have that so so there's a real commitment because right. nine years is a long time to be waiting yeah they waited and waited and i don't think they really put all their eggs in one basket they were okay if it, it didn't get approved and mm. we would continue living in hong kong but when i was nine years old the u.s government finally replied and said hey you guys can you guys can come you have a year to decide wow and that was the year you know my mom and dad sat together and really decided okay so at, at what point do we pack up or do we continue as is and it weighed in a lot of factors in the professional lives and the personal lives and what my sisters were going through what I was going through and finally decided hey you know what I think I think it's worth it mm -hmm. let's let's do it let's quit our jobs it's such a big leap yeah, yeah. Uh, but ultimately seeing our lives now and how it has been since um, 1996 was that was a year we left mm. it's been uh, I have to say for the better for mm. So it's actually played out their their dreams or their hopes as immigrants going to the states. You'd I'd say, say so overall. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of aspects to it. There's a yeah. lot of ups and downs, no doubt. But overall, I would say everyone's lived living a pretty comfortable life. That mm. some aspects my parents could have uh, predicted, and definitely a lot more that they couldn't have. But mm. you know, now they have grandkids, and everyone's living within five six kilometers of each other, mm. and uh, it's, yeah. it's going well. Everyone's healthy. That's great. And so just talk us through your, I guess, your own identity as a child then, because you're moving, you said you were nine years old? Ten, yeah. Ten. So what do you take from the country that you've come from to the new place that you're going to, and how do you meld them together? Or, or you know, what, what was that like for you as a child? Mm, good question. So even going back when I was a child in Hong Kong, um, it's not, it's, I usually say I'm from Hong Kong instead of saying I'm from China, even though Hong Kong is and has been a part of China since 1997 and, of course, but well before that. Mm -hmm. uh, but Hong Kong for 150 years was a British colony, and so there were a lot of external influences from the UK and, obviously, uh, the commercial, economic, and social rules and, and in society were different. Mm. So it was. it's always been a bit of a melting pot of mm. many different peoples, languages, and cultures. So growing up, it was uh, less homogenized, I would say, than most parts of um, mainland China. Mm -hmm. And so I think at an early age, I was, um, I've was i been exposed to a diversity of different cultures and peoples. Mm -hmm. And that continued on, obviously, when I moved to Los Angeles. And we moved, we moved to a part of Los Angeles uh, where there's a lot of Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. And so at age 10, going into the public education school system in the U.S., I was then exposed to Thai Americans, Taiwanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, you name it, it's mm -hmm. there. My, I guess my best, closest friends growing up were just a huge mixture of different friends. So I think in that regard, having had seen a lot of different people and being exposed to a lot of different foods and smells and culture mm -hmm. helped primed me mm. for the multinational experience mm. in, in the U.S. And a lot of my friends, too, those close friends, they're first, second, maybe sometimes third generation, but it's rare to go beyond third generation. Mm. A lot of 
those same kids and their parents and grandparents are immigrants. Mm. Yeah, so that helped with the transition. But obviously, my English wasn't very good when I moved to the U.S. And it took, thankfully, because I was only 10, it took about, I remember pretty clearly, about a year and a half, two years for me to really assimilate linguistically mm-hmm. into American society. Uh, but there was always a bit of a cultural gap, and that took a little longer. Right. <laughs> it took a while to catch up on the, the TV shows and the movies. And, <laughs> and, the, and the bad foods. <laughs> Junk food, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you just describe for us um, what you were like as a teenager or going to high school? How, it, it, If you could look back and think about that, you know, what sort of person were you? Sure, sure. Um, very different from now. Let's, I'll start with that. Mm. Uh, a lot of people... They meet me now, and in the recent maybe three, four, five years, um, they would associate me as always have been an outgoing person, mm-hmm. someone who's extroverted and loves to be outdoors, you know, sociable, I, su- I, I suppose. Um, but I wasn't always like that. I think as a kid, I was, I would go as far as saying I had some difficulty making friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, with, the, with the big move to the, to the U.S., I don't think that really helped it especially in the first year or two. Mm-hmm. But sure enough, I think it helped that there were other Asian Americans who were also struggling with English, who were in what we call ESL back in the days, English mm-hmm. as a second language, mm-hmm. who were like, you know, we try our best, but we're kids, so we can communicate and have fun beyond English proficiency. Mm-hmm. And that helped a lot. Um, but I had a small circle of friends that I play some sports with and hang out with but for the most part in my early mid even late teenage years I definitely was more of a play some sports play a lot of video games stay at home watch tv kind of kid mm-hmm. yeah yeah my parents would and, and when I say my parents really my mother <laughs> would take it out take us out on these great family trips to the national parks mm-hmm. all around the west coast and I actually really enjoy that but I wouldn't have um thought some years down the line, as I do now, that I would actively seek out for these kind of nature getaways right. as uh, frequently as I do now. Yeah. So what sort of subjects were your favorites in high school then? I was actually really into math and computer science. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was quite good at it. I consistently, um, I don't believe in the metrics that have been set with standardized tests, but I've always done pretty well on those. Mm. But my favorite subjects were kind of math and computer science oriented. Mm. Right. And one of the things we're going to talk a lot about, I think, is about photography, videography. Is that something that emerged at that age that you enjoyed, or did it come later? Yeah, it it didn't really come out through school. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first camera that I shot with was my mother's. It's a film camera. It's a very basic 35mm color point-and-shoot camera. So a roll of 24, roll of 36, but everything is automatic, you know. There's no fancy dials and buttons. You just turn it on and you take a picture. You don't yeah. get to see it yet. <laughs> Some you point like, and shoot. <laughs> right, yeah. so well, that's it. the funny thing. Technology changes so quickly. There's some people listening who are probably going, what is he talking about? Right, What's, yeah. What, why is he saying 24 and 36? Right. <laughs> if, if you're born 90s or later, you yeah. <laughs> we may have to translate for you because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also remember I, I love photography um, and as a hobby, you know, and I remember some of the first 
photos I would take, you yeah. you would think a long time before you hit click because you know yeah. there was only 24 shots and it cost money <laughs> to get them And you don't want to miss it. And you don't want to miss it. But, you know, like you'd get a rollback of 24 and you'd go, oh, man, <laughs> yeah. it's blurry. You or know, sometimes like you go, whoa, like that really worked. Yeah. 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 And then you can, it's too late because the moment's gone. But. Right. <laughs> it's a bit of a delayed dissatisfaction and or delayed gratification. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I always used to think, you know, out of 24, if I could get one or two that were really good, yeah. that was like a really good success because yeah. it's... Uh, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just talk us through then, um, you're in high school there in Los Angeles. So yeah. what came next after you'd finished up with high school? Sure. Oh, maybe I want to backpedal a little bit yeah, sure. with uh, the photography question. Yeah. I think what really spiked my interest was in 2000, 2001, which was actually in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of getting into your question now. Yeah. Um, my, my cousin had purchased one of those first Sony digital cameras, 0.3 megapixels. Mm-hmm. But get this. This is the kicker. It saves pictures on floppy disks oh wow those three and a quarter inch floppy yeah disks, yeah 1.4 megabyte of storage nice saving 0.3 megapixel images <laughs> it was hysterical but it there was the start of instant gratification right. you take a photo and you're like hey look at that it's right here yeah yeah and it saved um it's <laughs> it saved pictures we sound these. so old don't we, yeah, like, do we? <laughs> remember the days <laughs> Getting yeah. there, getting there. It saved pictures on these eight megabyte memory sticks, which I thought, wow, that's like five times a floppy disk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but my goodness. that really um, piqued my So interest. that flipped your interest in, Absolutely. and so you started using that to take some photos. And Yeah, I just took it from him. Yeah. He, he, he barely saw it. Right. Yeah, I used it a lot more than he did. Yeah. yeah. And a year after, my sister bought a two megapixel. Uh, Canon point and shoot with a larger screen, smaller form factor, and wow, the image quality. Right. Yeah, I still remember it. It was the Canon S one ten, two megapixel pictures. Wow. Yeah, and that was the really the snowball. Started, yeah. Started rolling. Started gathering momentum, size. Right. I I was I was a fan. Yeah, and so what what form did that take for you then? You or, or how did it play out? <laughs> yeah, I, I started really just taking pictures in the backyard mm-hmm. of uh, flowers, our dog, the sky. Um, whenever we have weekend family trips out to the beach or maybe in the hills, I would take it along. And uh, I remember using it just like my cousin's camera. I would use it more than my sister did. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's amazing. That was really a revolution that was going on, wasn't it? Because oh, yeah, the, the, early the traditional print you know, photos was being overtaken by all of a sudden this the image quality of the digital cameras was oh, yeah. meeting and exceeding yeah and you had that instant uh ability to access what you'd taken oh yeah, yeah. i'd say the early 2000s um, a high majority of pro photographers were still shooting film mm-hmm. um, but it was maybe 2004 or 5 mm. when that shift really happened people were like hey i'm shooting film and digital right and digital Mostly, I guess, digital SLRs with the big lenses and big bodies were approaching that image quality where you could start replacing a lot of that film work mm. with digital mm. and clients are, pro- you know, for projects and, and they, they wouldn't be able to tell a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It was really revolutionary. I think as a teenager, I was really excited about that. And I yeah. started reading magazines, too, and 
seeing how um yeah just like the cutting edge progress was happening left and right yeah mm-hmm. and you got to be a part of it <laughs> from an early age absolutely yeah. yeah that was all um self-cultivated yeah um, i took i took a really short film class in high school because they got my high school was one of the few high schools that actually has a a full dark room uh, with enlargers and all the chemicals and, and dark rooms and i took a class and really to appreciate where it's come from mm-hmm. and knowing that i'm likely not going to shoot film but i know i can appreciate how far yeah photography has come and i understanding that process mm. of light um, the light box, a dark room, and all the chemicals mm-hmm. helps me then appreciate capturing an image, freezing a moment mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is around, I think, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like you really fell hard for photography. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say those last two years in high school was was another good turning point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, maybe just talk us through the next couple of years, like what, what happened for you next? Sure. Sure. In the last, last year of high school, I was pretty set on studying computer science and engineering. Uh, in, mm-hmm. I studied a lot of coding, um, continue doing photography as a hobby, uh, probably shot photos at least two, three times a week. And, um, never thought so much of turning it into an area of study mm-hmm. or an area of profession. It's always a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, but I continued that track uh, as a computer science and engineering major mm-hmm. for the next three years before I realized, nah, not for me. I don't really want to sit at a desk in front of a screen day in, day out doing right. coding. Yeah. And I realized I actually wasn't very good at it. That was, that was an important, <laughs> that was an important uh, discovery. It's like, oh, I'm actually not that good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to find out. Yeah, yeah. And the high level. And, and was that, was that uh-huh. a moment that you remember that you thought, no, nah, this is not going to work or, or was it sort of a gradual, you know, realization? I would say it was gradual and, um, mm. I maybe at a deeper level refused to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Second year was pretty clear because all the all the Java to C++, and I was like, what is going on? Yeah. The introduction classes were fine, but once you got to a high level of uh, creating programs and yeah. going through pages and pages of code, my eyes were spinning. Yeah. yeah. So where did that leave you, or, or what was your thinking about what you do next? Yeah, it was difficult. My, my parents have always been supportive in nearly everything I do. Um, they were also pretty convinced that I was going to be on track to be a computer science major. Um, but I would say having a drastic shift in the area of focus was also a big shift for them. And uh, I somehow felt compelled. I think I was 21 at the time, and I had just transferred to the University of California um, that I would switch my majors. And back then, I think when you talk to students at that undergraduate level switching majors was a big deal because you, you felt so set to declare your major right it's so official you kind of committed to something yeah. yeah and then you have to tell the school and your family and friends that oh I, i'm not in economics anymore i'm not in psychology anymore right you know and i'm switching um but i felt somehow really empowered to do it i felt very compelled to say hey think this is this resonates with me mm. and i feel really drawn 
to making this what I really commit to. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I think it's it's not talked about a lot, but a lot of um, kids in, in, in undergrad, they change the majors one, two, three, four times. Mm-hmm. Certainly not in not unheard of mm. yeah well it's part of a process of coming to know who you are and exactly. what you want from your life which ultimately that's what education should be challenging people to do at exactly. age whatever you're probably 19 20 21 exactly. like you're still pretty you're pretty young it's really okay young. you can switch you can pivot absolutely okay. <laughs> yeah for all you young listeners out there it's yeah. okay to change what you like yeah you just have to be true to yourself yeah and know that it is what you like yeah 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 so I, I switched from uh, computer science to earth sciences, hmm. studying the natural s- cycles and systems of our planet. And uh, with that, it was an interdisciplinary major, so a lot about society and environmental and sustainability. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And was that at the same university? or Same different... university. Yeah. yeah. The beautiful thing was, this was unplanned, because I went into, um, this is in San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego. Mm. They happen to have one of the most prestigious oceanography and climate science research institute in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, some, some people would call it luck. Some people would call it an act of God. Some people would just say, hey, that just so synchronistic. Yeah. And I look back at that with a smile for sure because yeah. I ended up going to lectures and classes and um, field courses with some of these renowned climate and geology researchers and scientists and I, I learned so much and I, I enjoyed learning that was the most important part Right. and I was fascinated by actually going to class and hearing what they had to present to me yeah. so it was a real challenging environment rather than just kind of uh got to go to class yeah today. it was it was i would say it was fascinating f- and f- i would even say fun first and then challenging because mm. that i would say studying the coding and high level math with my previous area study was challenging but this mm. no longer was challenging in the sense that i was pulling my hair and feeling stressed out about the de- a decision i made right yeah yeah and there was an alignment of purpose with who you were as a person it sounds like I, I would say at that young age, I never used that word, purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But looking back about 10 years, 11 years later, that was the beginnings of it. Mm. Absolutely. That's good. And just going back even further, you mentioned your mother used to take you around to, I guess, like Yosemite and other national parks and things. Can you kind of trace it back to there as well? That, Yeah, without a doubt. Mm. I actually, I often give her credit for it. And... Mm. Um, I remember as a kid, we went to Zion, Yosemite, Yellowstone, mm-hmm. um, Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. We even did a road trip over in Florida and right. went into Everglades. It was just her and I, too. It was oh. really special. Wow. So That's I always, I always um, credit my mother in, I think, at an earlier age, mm-hmm. invoke that sense of wonder and, mm-hmm. and interest in, in the natural world, mm-hmm. which I still carry and I probably amplify today. <laughs> yeah. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful aspect to your story though. I'd love to pick on it because Please. as a parent myself, right. sometimes you 
do things for your children or with your children that they don't necessarily appreciate at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you kind of think, am I banging my head against a wall here? Like, <laughs> we're going to see this waterfall. It's going to take 35 minutes to walk in. Yeah. They just want to watch something on the show, you know, like, yeah. it, but actually persevering maybe with the idea that sure. one day it will have an impact. Sure. Yeah. I totally hear what you're saying. Cause especially now with, um, these devices and all these super high definition and cool way to record mm. everything in life. Mm. I, I could hear some kids going, dad, we could watch it on 4k on our screen. It's like, no, like son, like mm. it's another thing to hear it, feel it and just sense it, mm. that waterfall. It's mm. like it's something you don't get out of the screen that mm. I don't think that will change mm. for a long time. If yeah. Ever. No, I agree with you. But I think as you know, as a parent myself, it's sometimes you feel like you're forcing your kids to sure. have these experiences, you know. No doubt. And, and you end up being like a, a stereotype like of the parent dragging their kid along. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice to hear that I love that that aspect of your story that it was you and your mom yeah. out in the Everglades, you know, that, that you went to these national parks and yeah. that looking back you can go, Wow, twenty years later or whatever, that actually had a big impact on, for on sure. my life course for sure so. and i i have to say i have plenty of friends who have had that similar experience with mm -hmm. their parents one the other or both or even like other family uncle aunts mm -hmm. and they i suppose a lot of friends in my circles are into the outdoors or they do it as part of their work and profession mm -hmm. they can often trace it back to early experiences with a guardian yeah parents yeah. or whoever yeah and doing that yeah so what's your thoughts about the i guess that relationship between you and your mom and and how much she fed into you if she, if it was just you and her off together like what do you think that um that did for you hmm yeah so huh that's a good <laughs> deeper profound question I, I have really vivid memories of these road trips with her and always look back upon it with a smile. I would say she's still, between the two parents, still the parent that I would actually ask, hey, like, why don't we go to Taiwan together? Hey, would you come visit me in Seattle and we can go maybe camping for a night or two? You know, she's that parent that I can actually have some adventures with. Whereas my father is uh, less adventurous in that sense, let's say. So I would... I think I'm struggling to really answer your question full on. That's okay. Let me phrase it a different way. Yeah. If, if one day you have children, yeah. how would you act with them? I would be more my mother figure in my life for my kids if I were to have kids. Mm. So Definitely. what would that involve, do you think? Plenty of time outside. Let them play. Let, let it organically unfold. Don't worry about them getting dirty. Don't worry about them getting falling. And more time outside than on the screen, mm. for sure. Let them discover. Let them run wild with their sense of curiosity mm. with the world. Mm. I would definitely advocate for that. Mm. And the beautiful thing is I have four nephews from my sisters. And when I do go home <laughs> and see them, 
I'm able to provide that on a small scale for them. And mm. I love the reaction mm. and the joy that they get out of it yeah. and being able to witness that. And also as an adult now, facilitate that mm. and understand mm. the inherent value of it. Yeah. And to be that figure for the next generation, right? Absolutely. And I think the word that to me is so important is being present, mm-hmm. being present with the child. Because these days for adults as well, and I'm guilty of this, we can be in the same room as people, but we may not necessarily be there with them, yeah. if you know what I mean. I like, do. Because uh, I've got my phone and I'm checking something here on Facebook or right. I'm responding to an urgent email. Like I'm physically in the same room as these people, but am I actually present? It's a, it's a challenge for myself, you know, that how much time do I spend on screen? Right. How much time do I spend? How much time do I spend actually saying to my daughter, let's go play soccer outside in the sun, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's good. Well, this conversation is going many different directions. <laughs> like let's it. bring it back to sure. um, just with your life. So you continue to study. You're studying outdoors, oceanography, yep. quite interesting topics. Um, when you came to the end of that study, was there a clear path of what you were going to do next? Or <laughs> No, I would say there hasn't really been a clear path. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say ever in my life, but my, my life looking back now has always been um, a lot of curves and turns and mm-hmm. sometimes backtracking. And I've, I'd say in the recent years, I've come to really embrace it. Yeah. Um, to hit, hit your question more directly, um, after university, I actually took an unpaid position for several months mm-hmm. with an organization that I had been volunteering for as a student, knowing that this um, unpaid position could lead to an in-country paid position. Right. Uh, and the reason why I took that was because, thanks to my parents, I was not inundated by student debt like a lot of my peers mm-hmm. and friends in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I had the luxury and cushion of choosing something that I wished to do mm-hmm. rather than needing to make ends meet for myself immediately out of university I see. and needing to pay that loan back. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a shout out to my parents for having supported me through <laughs> university without my worrying about financial instability which is an amazing legacy because i it's similar here i think people often graduate with debt and thinking i have to get a job right away yeah and i often um wonder about that because so often people get busy with doing mm-hmm. not understanding who they even are yet you know that if what they're doing is actually going to be fitting nicely with who they are as a person sure mm-hmm. sure and I understand there's responsibilities in life that you have to take care of and mm. feeding yourself, supporting your family and whoever else you're supporting absolutely needs to be first and foremost priority. Mm. I was lucky enough to be in a position where I could choose to do and live in a place that I want to be because that was bringing me fulfillment. Mm. So going back to that position, um, the organization that I volunteered for it's called Global Brigades, and they have many different chapters across many universities, mostly in the U.S., but also in Canada and a little bit in the U.K. as well. Mm. But 
what Global Brigades has been doing, and I believe they still do today, is they set up these seven to ten day volunteer trips, target primarily for undergraduate students to uh, be of service. Mm. So it's a it's a non-religious, non-profit organization, non-governmental mm-hmm. organization, and the focus on these projects are um, multifaceted. So it's medical, dental, public health, water, um, business, mi- microfinance, environmental, um, maybe missing up architecture as well. Mm. And cool for me, the environmental and public health aspects really attracted me. Mm. And so I did that for a few years as a student volunteer. And I took a I took a position to be an advisor for incoming students, so that they can set up the trips, have a successful, really uh, enlightening time mm-hmm. in Honduras, in Panama, mm-hmm. uh, primarily. And they would come back and hopefully just be more mindful of it, the issues in the world. Mm-hmm. And also be grateful for what they they have had mm-hmm. in their own lives, mm-hmm. yeah. and that that and that that travel to another country would almost shake them enough where they then questioned what they would do with their own careers and and their futures, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In '09, I took my first trip um, on a public health project, mm-hmm. and I went to Honduras. And I'll always credit this trip for shattering my more my worldviews mm-hmm. especially um in regards to water and sanitation um i saw people that spent 20 to 50 minutes walking to water sources streams springs that are often unclean and hauling back tens of liters of water on their backs and their heads that i, I was 21 at a time mm. for me was just so mind-blowing mm. and I, I just never saw water and access to health and preventative um, education to be the same mm. ever again. You never take it for granted, right? No. I yeah. came back feeling really angry with society. Right. I'm talking like American society yeah. and, and how wasteful we are and how much excess there is and right. how infrequently that's talked about. Mm. And we, we let it be and we, we just turn a blind eye against it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that yeah. was a big paradigm shift. So this organization offered a lot of value in my life since 09 on that first trip. And mm-hmm. so I decided, hey, graduating about a year and a half later, I would continue working for them. Right. And because if even 10% of the kids who go off to do these trips have that giant paradigm shift, I feel like it's worthwhile mm-hmm. for me in that position to help facilitate and ensure that happens. Mm-hmm. It's a great, yeah, it's a good mission. I think, you know, for me, um, my father had an unusual career, as I I was telling you before we started recording. Right. So we moved to Chile, um, Uh southern Chile, when I was 11 years old. And we lived there, and I I still remember that people would come to the door knocking, asking for bread. For me, that's something that's always stuck with me. The, Mm -hmm. The reality of poverty in so many parts of the world is you know, more than just an image on a screen. So, sure, yeah. sure. And poverty, too, has taken a very different meaning for me. Mm. It's, it's not, in the past, it was about lacking money, maybe a home. Mm. But poverty for me now is inequality on a societal scale mm-hmm. with resource distribution. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, and that's that can good. mean so many different things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can... 
I, could, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I mean, part of the purpose of this podcast is to just have conversations. And, uh, you know, as you can tell, we've gone many places already with this conversation. Sure. So um, just in terms of what happened next, I'd love to sort of bring us up to present day. So can you just talk us through after that experience, sort of what happened sure. next? And then mm-hmm. and then also what you're doing now. I'd, sure. I'd love to hear more. I could fast forward a bit because we're still talking about about seven to eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after that unpaid position, I was, as I um, had hoped and anticipated, offered a full-time in-country position to be an advisor for the environmental program of that organization. And I went to Panama, where I lived right. for about a year and three months, wow. developing an environmental program and uh, being a facilitator and volunteer coordinator for a lot of university students had a wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, I worked with quite a lot of indigenous people mm. in eastern Panama, primarily. Uh, the Embera people, first and foremost, the, the Kunas, mm. who are on the Caribbean side mm-hmm. in east Panama. And also a little bit with the, the Nobe people in the west. Mm. And through them, uh, I gained so much um, wisdom with the land and mm. appreciation for indigenous history, culture, and the perseverance, mm. no doubt. Mm. And I've taken I've taken that with me everywhere I've gone mm. since uh, my time in Panama. It was really formative. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I was at a I was at a bit of a I guess a slump because I had lived in Panama, which is a country of polarization. On one hand you see um, a lot of wealth coming in through those multinational banks in the, in the, in the city. And on the other hand, um, right next to these high rises that are built, most of which are unoccupied. <laughs> you see these tin shacks, mm-hmm. these little shanty towns and mm-hmm. people who live on, you know, less than, let's say less than $10 for sure a day. Mm-hmm. And they, they barely scrape by. And then there are these people driving six figure cars, just like driving right next to them. Mm-hmm. And that, that really hit me at a level that I couldn't quite articulate at the time. But I came back to the U.S. feeling with a sense of, like, kind of lost and wanting to realign myself to kind of the next purpose in my life. Mm. I still didn't call it purpose back then. Mm. Um, one thing I realized was that I was teaching um, a lot of locals and as well as a lot of university volunteer students who were coming through mm. about sustainable agriculture and organic farming. But I realized that in my formal education, I had barely learned about it. So as little as I had I had known, I was trying to facilitate these workshops and teaching people the, the better way and realizing my own ignorance. Yeah, there's no better way to put it. So I, mm-hmm. I did some um, courses online through Coursera, mm-hmm. which is an open source, uh, free-for-all mm-hmm. um, education platform and they feature a lot of big university and prominent professors from all different subjects and topics mm-hmm. fascinating stuff i did this i did this course on um the u.s food system and it, it coincided with my interest at a time to learn more about food and how it, where it comes from mm-hmm. and i ended up wanting to travel on my bicycle so i did a multi-month bicycle tour of organic small scale and homestead farms across Canada and the West Coast of the U.S. Mm. And that was a wonderful experience. And mm. I got to improve my photography. I, I got to know um, about how food 
come to be <laughs> from farm to table and all the intricate and small and big processes that it takes and all the mm. people and manpower mm. um, to go from seed to going into our bodies mm. and hopefully back out and closing that loop. Mm. Yeah. And was photography, you just mentioned photography there, but we hadn't talked about it for a while. Was it something that you'd just continue to do in Panama and that was developing? Yeah, it was, it, it developed quite a lot in Panama. I had shot for the organization that I worked for. Not that it was part of my job description, but mm -hmm. I was happy to gift my photos to them. I ended my time in Panama with a exhibition mm -hmm. where I made a lot of prints and I did a, a gallery night and mm -hmm. sold a bunch of that. That was a really fun and also enriching experience for me. Yeah. And it was kind of that one of those first major steps I took in taking photography to the next level where I'm starting to do it on a part-time scale, mm -hmm. doing it with income doing it professionally as mm. people would call it yeah but i was 2012 2013 i'd still it was more of a full-time hobby than it was a profession back then mm. but with the bike tour i successfully uh did a crowdfunder uh to also sell the prints that came out of this farm and bicycle tour mm. and it just got all these wheels and cogs turning going wow i could i could i could get paid to listen to these farmers' stories, document their lives, and tell people how these farmers live their, live their livelihoods and how they grow food mm -hmm. and the immense attention and detail and morality that goes into growing food organically and humanely. Mm. That was a big part for me. Mm. Yeah, so it was the question that came out of that trip that really came to be as I was cycling and visiting these farms was how do I find that overlap intersection of service, art, learning, and adventure all into one package. Mm. And I did actually create a video opening with that prompt. Mm. And I would say that was a massive success mm. for me. I, I'd still look back on that trip a multi-month trip on a bike with, with a huge grin on my face mm. every time. So that was like a real pivot point for you where Absolutely. you've been going along and the Panama experience was obviously very transformational as well, but yeah. it was actually the bike trip where you'd say that was what started you in this d different direction. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And uh, Panama also gave me this confidence to be out in the world on my own. Mm in a country where a different language is spoken than what I'm fluent in. Right. And just feel at ease and be in, immersive in a, in a different land, in a different culture. Mm. And it got me to be much more curious about the world and wanting to see more and more of it. So mm. the bike trip was one of the first manifestations coming out of Panama. And then after the bike trip, there was this many other international as well as domestic trips. Yeah. Yeah, it took place. <laughs> That's great. And then you ended up in Seattle, is that right? Or was that... Yeah, Seattle came probably about a year and a half after that bicycle trip. Mm -hmm. And I moved there because, partially because of that bicycle tour. I went through the Pacific Northwest, which uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the region, encompasses uh, British Columbia and Canada, Washington State in the U.S., mm -hmm. Oregon, and the northernmost part of California. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it's really a, a bioregion and also a region where if you look back and trace back to the, the native peoples, the First Nation peoples, um, the, the, their way of life and what they ate and uh, the climate is very similar. Mm. So I consider that as a one region and I don't want to. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place because mm-hmm. it has mountains, lakes, rivers, yeah. forests. It's so dense. Yeah. 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 So through the bike trip, I became much more intrigued with um, the prospect of living in that area. And an opportunity came up uh, through a good friend of mine that I met through Go- Global Brigades for me mm-hmm. to check out Seattle with him and ended up just staying there mm-hmm. for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. You know? And this is actually a great segue because thanks to being in Seattle, I met a friend mm-hmm. through a project named the Beacon Food Forest. Mm-hmm. So I continued my interest um, of food production, but now kind of shifting gears a little bit in an urban environment. So no longer in rural farmlands, but more in an urban environment. Because I see there's a lot of potential in retrofitting of this existing urban spaces for food production and food resilience and food security. Mm. And it absolutely needs to happen because most cities, as I see it, are not very food secure. They rely heavily on imports from large distances. And if that supply chain was to break down or diminish, people in these dense urban settings would, there would be trouble. Mm. Yeah, and I feel that there is space, knowledge, and resources in a lot of these urban environments to grow food. And what better way to reward yourself than to pick strawberries Mm. from your rooftop, you know, cut some kale and chard right from your front yard, whatever it is. Mm. But just to offset some of that crazy import-export mindset and culture Mm. by localizing food and putting it in the hands of yourself, your neighbors and friends. Mm Um, so the Beacon Food Forest, uh, just to give a little plug, and maybe of interest to anybody who's listening, uh, is a multi-acre urban food forest, which is a food-producing forest mm-hmm. that's very intentionally planted with ideologies of permaculture and biodynamic farming mm-hmm. to create edible plants, herbs, and medicine for people insects and whatever local wildlife so it's human and earth centered and the idea is that we're sharing this abundance with all living things that come through a region or a space Mm. Uh, so it started with a bunch of neighbors in 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 this neighborhood in seattle and uh, they pitched it to the city and (laughs) Through a lot of yellow, red, multicolored tape, <laughs> a lot of back and forth, they made it a reality. It turned this, what used to be uh, a park of a park, a part of a park that was just grass, into a food-producing forest where people gather, people volunteer, and they grow food out of it. Mm. And I met this wonderful friend named Peter Wells, who's also here in Christchurch with us, mm. and he's now leading the Otakro Orchard mm. through the Food Resilience Network. Mm. He's the reason why I'm here. Right. And uh, there you go. It's about a year, probably about a year and a half ago, I was in Asia volunteering for Conscious Impacts, uh, an organization that's rebuilding in Nepal. Uh, when he told me, hey, like, 
been in Christchurch for a little bit. Really like the scene here. There's a lot of rebuilding. There's a lot of good folks doing great work at the grassroots level. I think you can get a lot out of it. Mm. You should consider checking it out. Mm. And I said, sure. Like I'll put it uh, mentally noted. Yeah. But currently, I'm I'm in Nepal and traveling Asia, mm. and perhaps next year. Mm. And uh, yeah, one thing led to another, and somehow I ended up here. And and, and your timing was impeccable because it was a social enterprise world forum, that's right? right? And you yeah. you arrive and oh, yeah. You probably think that was just you know. We just do those every week. <laughs> you get off the plane and there's 1,600 people all I gathered. wish that was a thing we did every week because that was a, a very high energy and inspiring event that yeah, drew a lot it was of great people cool. together. Yeah. And uh, the Social Enterprise World Forum was actually um, the kind of last push for me to say, all right, I'm booking that flight to Christchurch. Right. Um, because Peter had told me about it, and I said, "Look, what's th- what's the cost in entering?" Yes, <laughs> I looked at the price and said, "Nah, you want me to front up a one-way ticket and the cost of the forum?" Mm, I don't know, uh, but he told me about this grant, and thanks to the Akina Foundation, yeah, uh, I got in. That's great. Well, let's give them a big plug because yeah. I think um, thanks, Akina. Akina I mean, just to <laughs> put on a forum like that, like that's a that's a that was a world class monumental event, <laughs> no doubt. So I know there's a lot of people who did a lot of work behind the scenes. Yeah, and uh, you know, um, yeah, shout out to all you guys out there to make to have made it happen. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Pechacucha Social Enterprise World Forum. I lined up my arrival here. So you I can... set it up same week, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hit the ground I running. Busy. I was at that Petra Kucha event when I saw you. I think that was the first time I saw you because you came running down the aisle. And I like, did. Okay, I'm going. I'll uh, okay, get this. This is the behind the scenes. Um, if you were at Petra Kucha and you saw me dashing up on that stage, it was because I was completely ill-prepared and I was practicing outside the auditorium. <laughs> and I realized there was about 10, 15 seconds of silence and I said, it's my turn. I think it's my turn. I peeked <laughs> through the door and I saw my name on the screen. I went, oh, no. <laughs> me I'm give, meant to be up there. Let me give a dynamic entry by running onto the stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was memorable, so that's good. <laughs> you certainly remember it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So just take us a little bit back. Um, you're in Seattle right. and you're living there. And is that where Subtle Dream sort of originated or what's the timing there? And can you just explain what that is and sure. what you're trying to do with it? Yeah, we're bouncing all over with the time element, which is really fun. I hope you're still following. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle Dream actually came out um, during high school when I was, uh, I would say, 17 or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, the name came about because back then I was doing a lot of graphic design, actually, a lot of abstract graphic design. And uh, I, I was a self-taught Photoshopper, as I, as I used to call it. And mm-hmm. uh, I created these very surreal dreamlike scenes mm-hmm. in photoshop and i was studying the sats at a time one of the standardized tests that kids take to go <laughs> to go to college yep. and the word subtle came up mm-hmm. and i i loved the definition of it as i was studying these flashcards <laughs> so somehow i combined subtle and dream together and i decided to purchase the domain name mm. to what would be my um, website. And I was just using Subtle Dream as a, as a blog and also a showcase of my graphic design work mm. with my friends. And sure enough, it, it evolved into what it is today, which is 90 plus percent photography and a bit of um, videos I've shot. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've kept the name because it's, it's very fitting 
still in my life. It's still have a lot of lucid, surreal, subtle dreams. And yeah. sometimes I feel, and by sometimes I mean usually, I feel a lot of the moments that I capture yep. in nature and with people or people in nature or whatever combination of elements and subjects. The way I see it and the way my audience and friends perceive it, it's very dreamy still. And they, they often don't get that perspective until I show it. And I love that process and love that sense of, whoa, I didn't see it like that. Or like, whoa, that light is magical. Mm. Or that's so dreamy. Or that looks photoshopped. Mm. <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've kept it and I really like it because another reason too, my name is pretty common. Um, a lot of people have the last name Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan isn't exactly a name that really stands out. So I've never really considered using Jonathan Lee Photography as like mm. a name for a business or a domain name. It just doesn't pop. <laughs> so I've kept Subtle Dream. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's great. I think it's really good. And what we'll do in the show notes is we'll put a link to it. And so people can go and check out some photos and Lovely. see some of the things that you've done. Because, you know, it's really beautiful work that you've done. Much that, appreciated. That leads us nicely to what I'd love to talk with you about, which is photography. Sure. And um, we'll focus on photography, I think, rather than videography at the moment. But I know there, you know, there's a nice blending there of what you're you're doing. Yeah. But just with photography, you know, the the saying a picture tells a thousand words, mm -hmm. and you know that that you can look at an image in my mind anyway. Some of those National Geographic covers, for example. You know, like they're just so iconic and you look at it and you think that person has been captured. It's a portrait of the person yeah. rather than a photo, you know. Mm -hmm. um, can you just talk us through your your views of photography, I guess, and and, and photos and, and what your, your thinking is about them? Can you give me a more directed um, maybe area of interest or particular aspect of photography yeah okay well w what are you looking for um when when you are taking photos what is it that you're trying to capture hmm. something worth remembering mm -hmm. beauty and um i like to say in recent years that i'm immortalizing a moment because Sure, a lot of us have access to these really high-quality cameras in our phones and whatever devices we have, but the mentality behind it, I feel, is what sets a snap or picture mm -hmm. to a portrait mm -hmm. or a photograph. Because I, I think if, if a moment is intentionally captured with the intention of immortalizing a moment, First of all, time continues. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to get replicated unless you have all the elements in a scene in control. So like if you're in a studio shot, you can say to maybe like a model, hey, can you turn your head around again? You know, you have all the lights set up. But what I love is shooting outside where... I have absolutely no control in the elements. Right. The sun's always moving. It's setting. The cloud is going to cover the sun. You know, mm. the, the rain's going to come. Mm. And a lot of these events and people who are doing something, looking a certain way, certain emotions, 
They really only happen once. Mm -hmm. I can't ask the groom to put the ring on the bride's finger one more time because I missed a shot. Yeah. And I love that. I love that organicness of it. Mm. And the magic comes when you're able to witness it and also capture it and share that with the people that you're sharing that mm-hmm. moment in time with. Mm. I like the word that you use, the organic, you know, that, that these are moments in time that you're trying to capture a little sliver and preserve something of an essence that's happened. Yeah. I, we, we as humans value memory so much, you know, and I think a good photograph helps preserve these memories and bring more vividness mm-hmm. and jog memories for folks who have perhaps a worse sense of memory mm. a photograph or a series of photographs can help go oh yeah the mm. color of that stone mm. oh you were wearing that jacket at the time yes oh this was our first date mm. um, the memory is there but in seeing a photograph and feeling that you're reliving that moment, mm. all of those things as senses, even though it's a two dimensional screen or print, but maybe you didn't remember certain smells. Mm. You didn't remember certain feeling that it was cold that day, that it was mm. humid that day. But that's the power I think of a good photograph mm. or a good memory. Mm. I agree with you. And I think, as well as that, you know, those slices of history that you're making at that moment. You know, I love family history. I love the idea, like, what was my great-grandfather's life like? You know, that that I never met him, but he lived from 1885 till 1960. Uh What did he go through when he was 20, you know, and uh, it's 1905. He actually went to work on the Panama Canal. Um, So 1906 to 1908 or so, he was there as an engineer. Uh But I just think through his mindset, you know, he's on a a steamer ship going to Panama to help build the canal Mm -hmm. as a 20, 21-year-old. Like, what was it like? I I just, you know, I'd obviously love to be able to interview him. But the point is, we've got photos of him. So I never met him, but the photos of him, give a li- at least a taste, a little bit of a glimpse at who he was, who his character was. And, you know, I, I think it's so valuable to, to preserve those memories. That's magical. Yeah. yeah. It's really cool that the photos were taken by whoever it was mm. and have been kept. Yeah. That's passing on. That's the closest thing we have to time travel, I mm. feel. Mm. Moments of the class, glimpses from the past. Yeah. And whether it's a black and white photo or... or or color, or even a film, mm. it, uh, it it could say so much. It could offer so much. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In preparation for this interview, I was looking up some quotes about photography, and I want to read you one because yes, um, there was one that really stuck out to me, and it kind of fits with what you're saying. It said, look and think before opening the shutter. The heart and mind are the true lens of the camera. Does that resonate with how you're approaching your photography and... Yeah, it does. It does. Let me let me see that one more time. Absolutely. I remember reading that last night, Stephen, when you sent that to me. And mm. I definitely stopped on that one. Mm. And I read it again. Mm. My addition to that is, it's easy to hold down a shutter and just take a bunch of snaps. But when you're really framing, anticipating, waiting for a shot, the way 
you position yourself, what you capture, who you capture, the time of the day, maybe even what lens you use, the expression that you're about to to capture Mm. is all really a distillation, I think, of your heart and your mind. Because something that I find beautiful, something that I find worth remembering, is encapsulated in the photo. Mm. So you could... A really good test, actually, is you take a bunch of, I'm not even going to call them pro photographers, just good photographers mm. who may or may not have this mindset, but you bring them to the same exact location and scene, maybe even at the same time, and you say, take a roll, take a roll of uh, photos. Yes. Take 24 photos. Yes. And of what you find beauty in and come back and show us your results. You would get massively different results Mm. same place same time same equipment Mm. but everyone's personality everyone's heart right Mm. is a part of each snapshot especially when you have a limited amount Mm. yeah i think Mm. that really comes through that's beautiful and i think in any art form that has a part to play doesn't it if you're painting if you're writing Mm -hmm. if you're taking photos that the that there's a essence of the person as well that's involved in the process i mean in my own limited way this podcast is a form if you like because i'm asking people questions i'm listening i'm trying to i'm curious i want to know why do they do what they do and so therefore part of me gets poured out into the process of what becomes a little audio file Mm-hmm. that sits on a server somewhere no <laughs> that doubt. people can download and listen to. <laughs> no but doubt. I love that idea that, that art itself gets created through that, what we each bring, which is unique in the world, isn't it? Yeah, and recognizing that and appreciating that in others and in yourself mm. is a really powerful mental state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really good. Is there anything else about photography that that you tend to think about or ruminate on and... and would like to share with people or actually i think that, that might be another quote yeah okay you sent let's, me on here yeah let's have I a look i want to read and um maybe expand from that mm-hmm. yeah this is the one um i suppose i've talked about it already mm. it's by carl lagerfield what i like about photographs is that they capture a moment that's gone forever impossible to reproduce that's the aspect I really enjoy mm. because once it happens, that's it. Mm. If you ask for it to be reenacted, it's not the same. Yeah. yeah. The very process of asking has, uh, has muddied the water, hasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. The absolute genuineness of a moment that happens organically is what I love witnessing mm. and capturing. Mm. And to be able to take a man-made machine and encapsulate an, a moment like that. I, I sometimes like right, even right now I'm stuttering to find words Yeah. to, to depict the love and well, I, joy I was on, out of it. I was on your website looking at some of the images and I shared before, you know, you have one of a bride being hugged by, I assume her mother yeah. and just the look on the mother's face, you, you know, it's just captured that moment of, joy it's pure expression yeah yeah 
Yeah. I absolutely it's love so it. It's so special. Yeah. yeah. That's, well, why, that's, that's why I do love um, occasionally shooting weddings mm-hmm. because weddings often are some of the most joyous and pure expression, human expressions. Mm. Um, not that other situations aren't, but that is the day that a lot of people will remember for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And to be able to offer that and not only have them on their own biological memory, mm. but to be able to offer my perspective yeah. on a very memorable day for them. Yeah. Yeah. I do love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And just thinking about photography, you know, we've talked a lot about it. Um, if there's some people listening who like to take photos, but they have a camera phone or something, like what sort of tips would you give them to start going about this process of actually maybe moving on the stream of creating art to themselves? Um, it's 2017, almost 2018. So I would say most people in your pockets have a device with image capabilities that are far beyond even a multi-hundred dollar camera from 10, 15 years ago. Right. Certainly 20 plus years ago. I can say that without a shadow of doubt. Um, so in that sense, my two cents is there's not really an excuse to say, oh, I don't have a fancy camera to produce really high quality images. Ultimately, the bottleneck is you. It's me. It's you. Um, And with these devices that we have, we can already creatively create so much. Mm. And it's all on how you use it, where you bring it, when you remember to bring it out. Mm. And I suppose for anyone listening and want a tip is... uh, not just take a lot of photos, which I often hear as a tip, but be self-critical of these photos that you've taken. Look back on your photos and think, could I have taken this better? Could I have waited half a second longer to press that button? Could I have, you know, maybe waited for the sun to come down a little bit more? Be more mindful of when you press it because there's no limited film we tend to mindlessly just snap it and forget about it but be more mindful of each shot if we took cell phone pictures with the awareness as if we're taking a photo on a roll of film i think we can all produce better images Mm. with these devices and the truth is man I've, i've seen on Instagram and Facebook, a lot of amateur and professionals shooting only with their phones mm. and producing massive results. Mm. But imagine, like, you just don't really have an excuse. So mm. go, go out there and shoot, but definitely, like, look at others' work, look at your own work, and say, how can I make this better? Mm. And maybe be mindful and bring that awareness of what you're doing like some of those quotes that we were looking at, you know, yeah. just trying to capture that moment, right? Definitely. I, I would yeah. say in this case, less is more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's Being good. out in the right place in the right time is so key. Yeah. 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 So what does the future hold for you? You're here in Christchurch <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I, if I can answer that, I guess uh, I could take on a different profession. <laughs> Fortune telling or something. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that uh, 2018 is an open slate and uh, a blank canvas, which I'm maybe having 
the ability to start to sketch the outline of, mm-hmm. and that's very exciting. Um, I've been traveling and being nomadic for a while, and mm-hmm. that doesn't scare me. It, mm-hmm. it adds a lot of excitement in my life. Mm-hmm. But I do like that right now I'm anchored here in Christchurch and in South Island. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to explore. I definitely mm-hmm. intend on seeing more of this beautiful country uh, in the coming months and not stop on exploration and capturing the beauty that's around here. Mm-hmm friend of mine um, who lives here as well, we want to create um, a video showcasing Christchurch mm. in a form of uh, time-lapse and moving visuals, let's mm. say. And uh, we'd love to showcase it um, maybe March, April. We'll see how things go. And I certainly want to hold an exhibition space again. It's been a few years. Mm. love to make some big enlargement and prints and different formats, papers and canvas mm. and uh, have a night of showcasing beauty and do some storytelling. Mm. Also would love to do a fundraiser for an organization that's dear and close to my heart, which is uh, the rebuilding organization in, in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Hopefully raise some funds for them through the art. Mm. Um, I could be in New Zealand a bit longer. It could be a few months. We'll see. Can you just talk a little bit about Nepal? Because I think that, had a special significance for you as well, didn't it? Yeah, it really has, yeah. So in 2015, uh, as some of you probably know, there's two big earthquakes that hit April and in April and May of 2015. It was an 8 point, I believe 8.6, 8.4, really high magnitude. And in certain regions of Nepal, about 95 to 100% destruction rates of buildings. And that definitely includes homes. And so my friends were in the country at a time and they actually stayed and have mostly been there since the earthquakes. Mm. And they formed a rebuilding organization that uses natural building materials and techniques to help with rebuild. Mm. And they're situated uh, in a small village about five hours outside Kathmandu. Mm. Uh, And I've been there on and off for about eight, nine months in total. Mm Mm-hmm on four different trips, mm-hmm. um, helping out with the physical rebuild, interacting with a multinational team of volunteers, and also pitching in by capturing the progress of the the projects, the stories of the families and people mm-hmm. that we work with, mm-hmm. and just the overall beauty mm-hmm. and the culture, mm-hmm. the eclectic colorful culture that is nepal well, what we'll do is put a link maybe to a website so sure. people can find out more because yeah I, please i think it'd be great <laughs> you know spread the word and yeah there was actually a, a kiwi lady who approached me on the night of pechacucha and said hey i found out about the organization through your talk and through mm. erica austin and i'm going there to do some trekking as well as volunteer in december and she's just got back oh there you so these go. kind of things these kind of things work yeah yeah <laughs> well people hear something and something triggers for them right i mean that's yeah. the hope of the podcast is that people listening to us talk about a diverse range of topics yeah something in it is gonna go someone's gonna go maybe i need to get more serious about my photography yeah. or whatever it is you let know let me google like honduras let me google yeah. about nepal yeah like, yeah check out this website this organization yeah whatever comes out of it yeah no that's cool that's great um so Maybe just thinking about that word purpose, sure. what does that mean for you now? Purpose is, for me, is a fulfillment that comes at a much deeper, profound level. Mm. 
and it's the driving force behind me doing everything that I do and feeling that I'm achieving purpose, feeling Mm -hmm. like I'm constantly having and receiving purpose in life. And I think I've been lucky enough to have found that through traveling, being of service to others Mm -hmm. in all sorts of forms and also in doing photography Mm. and videography Mm. and the the combination overlap of all these things Mm. is it it, you can see me right now i'm just (laughs) (laughs) he's smiling (laughs) and i think that's that's one of the reasons i wanted to talk with you just because i think you've been able to uniquely combine your passions and your interests and this way of achieving purpose and helping other people in a really unique and unique way and i hope that that can be inspiring for some people listening who maybe would think well maybe i need to because how many people are doing jobs that they hate (laughs) who have have have, um you know wondered about doing something different and so interviewing people like you is important because i think it shows that it is possible it is possible to do things a little bit differently and to pivot out of whatever you're doing currently and to try push the boundaries a little bit so great point Stephen. Yeah. i, I want to add to that that it's entirely possible and a very important addition i like to make is that i talk about service of others but really you're serving yourself and in doing so that could be a byproduct it's not one or the other first but you need to serve yourself first mm. and while you're taking care of yourself and ensuring your needs are fulfilled, whatever it is, you can also take that mm. onto, onto other people. Yeah. It's often people who are in need mm. of service. Mm. Yeah. And the unfortunate reality is that all over the globe, there's people who do need help. And um, so, yeah. in your local community and a global community, whatever it is, but yeah. helping to find, what tickles your fancy, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Um, finding that uh, kind of like on a Venn diagram where it all overlaps mm-hmm. is very important. Yeah, Because you could be serving somebody by saying like going to a soup kitchen, but if handing out food just doesn't like make you tick, maybe find something else that's of service to mm-hmm. your local community, but you're something that you're more interested in, maybe like a beach cleanup. Mm. You're going, hey, I'm cleaning up this beach. It's mm. looking prettier. It's less hazardous to walk on mm. and for I, wildlife. I actually think there's parallels to what we were talking about before about the creation of art. Yeah. So we were talking about art needing, you know, that quote was talking about you bring your mind to the moment that you capture a, mm-hmm. a photo. Yeah. And we were saying, you know, that it's really the whole person involved and then painting or whatever it is, the art that you're doing, like actually treating other parts of your life in the same way Mm -hmm. that you can bring your unique story your own background can be used to then find something that is outward looking and and helping other people for sure Mm. sure going back to your question about what this next year and the future holds um i really want to keep doing what i've been doing which is not feeling the societal pressure to conform, not feeling this pressure to bend, to bend a lot of my moral and ethical values, but while doing 
what I love, what I'm passionate about. And passionate may be an overuse word, but it's still absolutely necessary and applicable mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, I don't want to water it down, but I am absolutely passionate about photography mm-hmm. and, and capturing moments and the environmental and social good of the planet and society. Yeah, And that, sadly, in our modern society, doesn't usually pay. But you find creative ways to make ends meet while be open to being supported by people who think, feel, and act that way. Mm. There is that support. There is that tribe. Mm. You just really have to go Mm. out there and be true to yourself and you attract who you naturally need to be with in Mm. order to make that happen. And it sounds like what you found is that it's a global tribe (laughs) that you've been able to meet people all over the world, whether it's Panama, New Zealand, Nepal, America, you know, even in Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere that there's people. Yeah. Yeah, Which is good. And that's one of the things I love about this podcast is I get to meet people like yourself who are doing things a little bit differently maybe. And, you know, and connecting the, the stories and there's these, the theme that runs through this podcast is purpose that people are choosing to act with their lives, knowing that we each have limited time. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do with it? You know? So I would say the more, the more I've traveled, especially in the last five years, the more I feel like it is a global phenomenon Mm -hmm. and that there are people who are living and working and breathing with purpose each and every day. Mm -hmm. And that, those are the people you want to surround yourself with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Absolutely. Good. Well, Jonathan, it's been great to talk with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for um, coming in. And I feel like in our conversation, there definitely are threads that if you, you know, if we listen back, I think we'll see nature making an appearance <laughs> and coming back, you know, through your mother first, but then coming back in your studies and now what you're doing which is such a powerful thread that sort of united your whole life. Um, But then just the way that you've taken the opportunities that have presented themselves to be challenged. And then what's that led to, you know, the bike trip around. And now here you are in Christchurch, New Zealand, right? (laughs) Learning again about (laughs) other things. So um, yeah, your story has been really fascinating. I I really appreciate your time and maybe we can have a catch up in a couple of years and, work out what's what the journey has led to for you that'd be lovely love to hear how your life path continues as well well i can't think of an interview where we covered the variety of topics that i went into with jonathan and i really enjoyed chatting with him and i think what he's doing in creating art through photos is fantastic and just that concept of approaching everything you do as an art form was really impactful for me and i hope you enjoyed that too Now, in the next week, we're going to be speaking with Joanna Pigeon, who's the president of the Auckland District Law Society, and she has a lot of amazing insights as to what it takes to succeed in a profession like the law. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Joanna. One thing that I've learned, you know, it's easy to find reasons not to do things, but Mm. but really, if someone approaches you about something, they obviously see you can do it. Take Mm. the opportunity. Well, I do hope you can join me for that conversation with Joanna, and we've got a number of other people coming up. And just to say, this is now the 22nd episode that's been uploaded, so there's plenty of other stories in the back catalogue. You might want to check them out. Until next time.